kids, you can be dismissed. I apologize for my voice. I got sick this week. Wednesday, Thursday, started to feel better. And then my voice went out the window. And so uh, I, I, I feel fine. I sound terrible. So I apologize for that. We are in our last week of our study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. <clears throat> and we're coming to this close. We have studied through these great letters, unbelievable letters. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to be doing that a bunch. And these letters, John has been writing about the song we just sang, that word abide. I think you could summarize that le- the, all of the letters with that one word, abide. Remain in, stay, don't graduate from who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. And so as we close these letters, it's important for us, it's good for us to reflect on what we have learned and to, to reflect on how we've been convicted. The Holy Spirit uses the word to convict of sin. I sound like a, a, a prepubescent little teenage boy strangling a frog. I feel like, I feel like that's what I sound like right now. <laughs> I, uh, the Holy Spirit uses the word to convict of sin. He also uses the word to, con- to convict of righteousness, to train us in righteousness, to show us where righteousness is found. And that means the Holy Spirit spotlights Jesus and says, that is where your righteousness is found. That's the only righteous one. That's the only place righteousness is found. You cannot find it anywhere else. So that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. And that's what John does throughout all of his letters. And so this morning as we wrap up, we're going to summarize. We're going to go back and I want us to remember why John wrote. He wrote for two big purposes and then under those two big umbrellas, he gives us tools, tools for how we can know that we are in Christ, valuable tools. But sometimes, and we've said it through this study, those tools, at the same time those tools can be encouraging, those tools can also be discouraging. It's a razor-thin line. We can look at these tools and say, well, I'm not perfect. I don't do that perfectly, so therefore I may not be a Christian. And that's not what John writes. John writes to give assurance, and he wants to give these tools so you can be confident, that's a theme in John, of your faith. And that leads us to our third point we're going to see this morning, which is an overarching theme and goal implication of the letters of John, and that is the joy and the freedom that we are given in Christ if we rest and abide in Jesus. The joy, the freedom, the immeasurable joy, the immeasurable freedom that we have in Christ. And so let's look at these three things. The reason John wrote. So I mentioned he wrote for two reasons, two big overarching umbrella reasons. The first is to strengthen faith. The second is to guard faith. So both are intertwined and related and really can't be separated because the best way to guard faith is to strengthen it. The best way to spot a lie is to know the truth. And so John goes over and beyond giving us the truth, pointing us to Jesus, highlighting and strengthening faith. While the gospel of John was written to awaken faith, the letters of John are written to deepen faith. For you and I, the believer, to take these letters and to know with certainty and confidence the person and the work of Christ in my heart and life. And then to squeeze that out into the lives of those around me. And so he writes that we would know and understand what the gospel transformed life looks like. That was a key question we asked when we started the letters of John. John is asking and answering, what does the gospel transformed life look like? What does it look like? How do I know what, how do I know what it looks like? so that I can know whether I've been transformed by it. That's why John's writing. He's writing to encourage believers and and to help us fight the tendency between being frozen in fear. I don't know if I am. I don't know if I've done enough. Oh, no. The Martin Luther 
feeling. Martin Luther was, was one of the reformers, and, and he struggled with whether he was rescued and saved, and he ran from confessional to confessional. He ran from church to church, mass to mass, thinking, I got to do more. I got to do more. I don't know if I've done enough. John writes to address that believer. He also writes to address the believer that feels like, I got to do more. I got to strive. I, I, I I've got to move on past Jesus. There's got to be more than just Jesus and the gospel. There's got to be Jesus and the gospel plus what I do, me. John writes to address both of those and to strengthen both of those types of believers. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 makes it clear he's writing to believers. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. You've been filled with the Spirit. And you all have knowledge. <clears throat> I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do, because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. So he's writing clearly to believers. And what's his thesis, his big idea, his reason for writing? He gives it to us. I love writers that just lay it out. Just here's what I'm trying to say. 1 John 5.13, we encouraged you guys as we started the study to memorize some verses through these letters. This was a verse that we, rec we, we, we recommend that you memorize. This is still a verse I would suggest that you memorize. This is why John's writing. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So believers, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know he's going to talk about confidence and certainty. That you would, that you would know with confidence and certainty that that you have eternal life. And remember, in John, in the letters of John especially, eternal life is not some concept. It's a person. It's the person and work of Jesus. That you may know that Jesus abides in you, has taken up residence in the home, the heart of your home, the home of your heart. So he writes to strengthen. But the second reason he wrote was to guard. To guard faith. To guard these believers from false teachers. False teachers that denied Jesus, that said, we, we, we can know God, but we can know God through a special experience, through what they called a special knowledge. Gnosticism was the, was the philosophy of the day. Gnosticism, knowledge. We, we know God through a special knowledge that he reveals to us. Listen to the irony of, of this philosophy, this way of thinking. God will reveal to him us in some special way, a special knowledge. That's how we know God. What about the Son of God who came in the flesh? John chapter 1, verse 14. He was God, is God, created all things, and is God in the flesh, tabernacling among us. He has revealed himself in Jesus. So what they denied was that Jesus was that revelation was that Jesus was the means of, uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. They denied that he was the Messiah. They denied that he was the Savior. They denied that he was the Savior who took away, takes away the sins of the world. He was a good man, they would argue. He, he was a historical figure. He taught some good things. He was influential. Do these sound familiar? These are the arguments that are still lobbied against Jesus today. Good man, historical figure, taught some things maybe important, and he was influential. But he's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. He's not God in the flesh. So we, if a secular person denies Jesus and wants to know God in some special way, they say we've got to find him some other way, through an experience, through an emotional experience, or through some special knowledge. I just got to study, study, study. I got to do more, do more, do more, which is the same struggle that Christians struggle with. I just got to be in 10 more Bible studies. I just got to go to 10 more church services. I just got to read more, do more. I got to know more. In other words, what we're saying, we can be complicit in the same argument, is that Jesus is not enough. And John says that's not true. Jesus is enough. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He takes away the sin of the world, and he is our redeemer. And what John's writing to guard against is, is to protect us, believers, these believers, protect us from hoping in anything other than Jesus. 
He's writing to guard us from, from looking away from Jesus to something else. Okay, maybe, maybe I'll hold on to Jesus and then I'll try to add something else to Jesus. I'll, I'll look to something else. Maybe it's, maybe it's church attendance. Maybe it's, it's doing something. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's, it's just, it could be a hundred million things. I'll look to Jesus plus something else. And John says, no, no. Listen to what the Holy Spirit does. And he did this over and over again. Listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spotlights Jesus. And what does he do? He looks at Jesus. He lifts our eyes to Jesus. He takes our eyes off of any horizontal treasure, pleasure, trinket, anything that we could put our hope in. And he puts it on Jesus. And so John writes to do the same thing. And he writes to guard against others who are trying to, to lower our eyes to some horizontal solution. 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He's clear. These, these, there are some who are deceivers. There are some who are actively trying to deceive you. There are some who are passively trying to deceive you. They are deceived and don't know they're deceived, and they're trying to lead you to, to, to discover some other way, and they're trying to deceive you as well. But he's also writing... Majority-wise, he's writing about those who are actively trying to deceive, who are trying to say, who have said and are saying, you know, great, that's wonderful that you think those things about Jesus, but he's not really the Savior, and the, here, there's some other ways. And he's trying to guard against those teachers. Second John chapter 7, for many deceivers, he calls that, that word there can be imposters, for many deceivers and imposters have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So here is wording. His wording is very intentional. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Jesus, Son of God, Savior, Messiah, in the flesh. God in the flesh. They deny that reality. And they are imposters. If they're teaching anything other than, than this good news of the gospel, they're imposters. They're deceivers. And so John is trying to write to strengthen, to bolster faith, to give assurance, and to guard, to defend at the same time. He does it largely by giving us the positive, by, by pointing to the strengthening of faith. Because the best Defense against a lie is the offense of truth. We don't need more Facebook information in our lives. We don't need more YouTube stories in our lives. We don't need more books. I'm, and listen, I'm a reader. <laughs> I love to read. We don't need more information. Information's good. I'm not denying that. But what we need more is truth. We need more of the word of God in our lives. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, Paul says, may, may the word of God dwell in you richly, lavishly. May the word of God take up residence in your heart to such a degree that it is filling you up and overflowing out of you. That's how much we, we need the word of God. We need the truth of God. So the best defense is not more information. The, the, the best defense is truth. And this is what John's giving. We need the word of God in our lives more and more. We need the truth of God in our lives more and more. We need to be anchored and rooted in Jesus and who we are in him. We need to hear that preached to ourselves and preach it to ourselves every single day, all the time. <clears throat> if we put these letters in John's purpose for writing in the form of a question, we've already said it, but what does the gospel transformed life look like and how can I know that I've been transformed by the gospel? That's why he's writing. And that leads us to the tools he provides. He strengthens and he guards against imposters and false teachers. He strengthens faith and guards against them by circling around three themes. We've said them over and over again. Three themes, big ideas, some people say, I mentioned this when we first started the letters of John. When you study the letters of John, you don't even try to put structure, gain some sort of 
structural understanding of it and, and, and organizational points out of the letters of John because he's so spiderwebs. He's all over the map. But the reason they say that is because he hits these three themes. He'll hit one, he'll move to number two and back and, and go to number three and then back to number two and then maybe over to three and then up to one. He, he hits the same three themes over and over again and repeats them. And those three themes are this. The first is right confession or belief about Jesus. Again, there are false teachers denying the reality of Jesus. And so he's teaching these churches and these believers about the truth of who Jesus is. I want you to understand who he is. I want you to have a right understanding of who he is, the person and the work of Jesus, so that you confess that he is the Son of God come in the flesh. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. No one who denies Jesus, that he's God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who, who takes away the sins of the world, no one who denies him has the Father. John's explicit. Anyone who confesses him has the Father. And that word confess is important because we think it, it, it means just to, to say something. Jesus is king. But anyone can say Jesus is king. Confess in the letters of John and what he's talking about is a verbal acknowledgement that has a visible representation. So in other words, if you say that he's king, do you salute him? If you say that you follow him, are you walking behind him like him? Do you look like him, talk like him, sound like him? Are these, is this evident in your life? So it's one thing to say something. It's another thing to be something, to do something as a result of being something. And that's what John is, is arguing here when he says, those who confess Christ have the Father. Everything rises and falls on our belief about Jesus. I could point to probably over a dozen verses in three letters where John is talking about our, our need to confess Christ and that it overflows into outward visible representation and then the opposite, the negative, re rejecting Christ or not confessing him. And confession, again, is more than mere words. The, the Greek word is homologio, and it means to make a confession that is visible. And, it, and we use this illustration the very first week. I know your confession about chairs because you're sitting in them. You made a visible confession with your bodies. No one in here came and inspected the chairs, flipped them up upside down, looked underneath. Is this going to hold me? No one's standing around the room. No one's worried that the chairs aren't going to hold them. You confess by your actions. Words are involved not with the chairs, but with Christ, but by our actions, our actions give evidence of our verbal confession, of our mental confession, of our reality, of our, of, of our being, our identity. I'm a believer in chairs because I sit in them. You're a believer in Christ because, as John gives, all these tools, these evidences are true. How do I know that you're a believer in Christ? Because I see these evidences in your life. We sometimes call them fruit, fruit of the Spirit. John, John uses different language. He doesn't call them fruit of the Spirit. He just simply points to evidences. <clears throat> the second thing that John circles around over and over again is a new right identity. As a result of this relationship to God, this vertical re reconciliation to God, because of Christ Jesus, my confession, my hope, he is my righteousness. I have no righteousness of my own. He is my righteousness. He is my king. I'm not king in my life. He is. That is where my righteousness is found, pointing to him, hoping in him. Because of that, I'm given a new identity, a new righteous identity, a new right identity, a new right standing before God. This is the other theme that John circles around. If, if, if all of that is true, that faith in him brings about real gospel transformation, then that gives us a new, clear-cut identity before God. We, we say righteous identity, and we're talking about right standing with God. Paul 
goes back and forth making this contrast in Ephesians chapter 2. But once, he says, we were dead in our sins. But now we are alive. That's an identity statement. I once was dead in my sins, but now I'm alive in Christ Jesus by the work of Christ and by, by the, the faith in his righteousness. I'm alive. Once I was in darkness and now I'm in light. That's an identity statement. Once I was separated from God, far from God, alienated from his covenants, from his people, from him. But now I've been brought near, Paul says, brought near, brought in, brought to the heart, to the chest of God. That's an identity statement. And John highlights that. Because of this new right relationship to God through the work of Jesus, I now have a new identity before God, a new right standing. We are now children of God. This is a huge theme in John. 1 John chapter 3. We're forgiven and cleansed of our sins. We've passed out of death and into life, out of darkness and into light. These are all in the letter of, letters of John. We're now members among the body of Christ. We have overcome the evil one. This is a huge one. John wants us to understand. He talks about this in 1 John 2, 13 to 14, 1 John 5, 19. 1 John, I mean, the list goes on and on. If we are, once we were, we were subjected, once we were in bondage, once we were oppressed under the, the thumb of the serpent king, but in Christ Jesus, we've been liberated. We, have, we are now, John says, we have overcome him. He says that everyone in, in the world is under the bondage of the serpent king apart from Christ. But in Christ, we have overcome him. And it's not a future reality. It's a present reality. That's an identity statement. The serpent king has no hold over me. King Jesus is my king. I'm set free in him. This is a radical new identity. And John wants us to understand this reality. These are all attributes and aspects of who we are now, and John is desperate for us to understand this. Let's, let's, let's turn the diamond on this a little bit and look at this for a second. Think about this. If our sins are forgiven, if our sins are forgiven, we no longer have to live in fear. Think about the reality and the joy and the freedom of that one truth. He says that out of the gate in 1 John chapter 1. That we have a redeemer who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If our sins are forgiven, we're free. We don't have to live as though we're oppressed any longer in bondage. We don't have to live in fear of our past identity, our past sin. We're not going to be crushed because of that. Jesus was crushed on the cross for my sins. I don't have to, I don't have to go, I'm, I'm liberated, I'm free, I get to walk in Christ, but oh no, what's God going to do? Is he going to get me over here for that? It's forgiven and the debt is canceled. Paul talks about this in Colossians. This is our identity in Christ now. Now. That's one truth, one truth that John talks about. If we're children of God now, children of God now, 1 John chapter 3, then we don't have to strive for his approval. Church, friends, hear that. Let that sink in past your head down to your heart. If we are children of God and he knows us by name and he calls us sons and calls us daughters and says, come here and crawl up in my arms. Let me hold you. You are mine. Then do you have to continue striving to get that approval? No. You have all of the approval of God in Jesus Christ if you are in Christ. All of his love, all of his attention, all of his eyes, all of his gaze, all of his, all of his effort, everything is, is towards you because it's towards Christ and you are in Christ. That's yours now, now, church. This is such unbelievable good news that John's giving us here. 
If we're united, here's another one. If we're united to Christ in union to him, with him, we're hidden in him, hidden in him, protected, guarded in him, which is why he can say so confidently, we have overcome the evil one and we have nothing to fear. The evil one can do nothing to you without first going through Jesus. John talks about in the Gospel of John, Jesus says it in John chapter 10, that we are in the ironclad triple grip of the Father, Son, and Spirit. No one can pry those fingers apart. And that's your truth. That's your reality now. That's your identity now. Peter talks about in 1 Peter that we have an immeasurable, impenetrable treasure locked away in heaven. That's the vault where your identity before God as a righteous son or daughter is sealed away and guarded, Peter says, by God. No one can take that identity away from you. No one can take away the identity of beloved son or beloved daughter. Nothing can take that away from you. Not you and not anyone else. And what is John calling us to do? Know that. Bask in that. Abide in that. Live and dwell there. Getting ahead of myself. Righteous living is the third theme that John gets to throughout his letters. The third theme that he circles around over and over again. If everything that we've said, that, that Jesus, by, by the work, personal work of Jesus, I'm reconciled to God. That's how I have this new relationship to God. And this is my new identity that he gives me. Then John's third theme is that we must bend that identity out into the world, into our relationships. That if we've been loved, so loved by God in such an extraordinary, gracious, sacrificial, and costly way, if that's the love that we have received by God in Christ Jesus, then that is also the love we are intended to bend and pour out into the relationships around us. And that's what we mean by righteous living. It does not mean perfect living. John never argues for a sinless perfection. Though it appears like it, it sounds like it a couple of times. What he's arguing for is that you lean that love, pour that love out into the relationships around you, starting first and foremost with your new kingdom family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And what he's describing is, is, that, is, that, we, is that we recognize that, that Jesus is God in the flesh, come from God to, to redeem and reconcile and to, to rescue and to take away the sins of the world, my sins in particular, that he's my only hope. And if that's true, well, I, look at the riches and the treasures and the blessings. Paul says the, the spiritual blessings, all of the spiritual blessings in, in the heavenlies are mine. All, I'm, 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 you remember DuckTales, right? And Scrooge McDuck going diving into all the gold and all of that stuff. Yes, that's, I just get to all these riches of, of, of God and all the riches of Christ are mine. Oh my goodness, look at this riches. Look at this gospel community. That's one jewel that I get in Christ Jesus. Over here, here's a whole nother jewel. I'm just picking up all the jewels. This is the identity information that we're talking about. And now I've got all this gold, all this treasure of my new identity in Christ. And he wants us to go and dump that out on our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the definition of love. That's the definition of love, 1 John chapter 4. What we're doing in that moment is modeling Jesus who had the full, all of the affection and the love of the Father and the Spirit and the Son in this perfect union in the Trinity. And the Father says, go. And he says, I want them to experience what we have. I will go. And I will pour out blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace so that they could know this kind of love. 
This is what John's writing about. This is what it means when we talk about righteous identity overflowing into a righteous living. It's taking all the jewels and the treasures that are ours in Christ and saying, oh my, you have to see this. Look at this. You know, here, it's yours. It's yours. I want you to have it too. This is what we're called to do in Christ Jesus. This is what John's writing us to, to, to calling us to. Those are the three major themes John hammers home, repeats over and over again, and in doing so, he provides evidence for us. Evidence for us, for us, for, for, as I read this letter, for me, first for me, and then as you read this letter, first for you. It's not evidences so that I can first look at, okay, the, uh, you're not doing this, it's not the first Thing that he's doing here. He's saying for you and I to read this letter and to see in this, is this true and incremental growth of my life, the trajectory of my life? In the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes to him at night. He's nervous. He's scared. He's, 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 he's worried what other people will think. He's worried he'll be put out of the synagogue. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus is talking to him, and he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus rightly is confused by that statement. What? How can I be born again? What does that mean? How do I? I, What? And Jesus tells him, you must be born again of the spirit. You must be born. It's a spiritual rebirth that must happen. Your heart is is a rock hard heart and it must be transformed and it's only by the work of the spirit. And the Spirit blows, he says, where he wills. And what Jesus is telling us there is that we cannot redeem or rescue ourselves. It's a work of the Spirit. Well, how do I know if the Spirit has rescued this rock-hard heart, turned it into a soft heart? How do I know that that's happened? How do I know that Ezekiel 36, 25 has happened where where the the heart, the black hard heart of my life has been transformed, broken open, and turned into a soft, malleable heart for God, for his truth, for his word, obedient to his, his commands? How do I know that that's happened? John is giving us the evidence. In, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, when he says the Spirit blows where he wills, how do I know the Spirit is blowing in the room? of your life or mine. I look at the rustling of the leaves. How do you know the wind is blowing outside? You see the leaves rustling. That's how we know. And so John provides evidence after evidence after evidence, or another way of saying it, rustling leaves. So look at this next slide here. These are my best attempt at summarizing the evidences that he gives. And they go beyond this. This is, a, this is just my little summary, trying to keep up throughout the letters of John as we've studied through these. One of the big ones right out of the gate is God is light. And then he says his children will resemble light. So do you look like light? Another one is God is righteous. Do, do we, his children, look like righteousness? He goes on, on, and on through all of these. Another big one in, in the letters of John is, is those who are in, in Christ love one another. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? These are tools. These are leaves, if you will, the rustling leaves that we can look for. Here's another big one. His commands are not burdensome. That's what John says. Do you, are you growing incrementally in viewing God's commands, God's instructions, God's commands to you, imperatives to you as less and less burdensome and more and more like life? C.S. Lewis uses the analogy that the, the mouse does not naturally chase the cat. If the mouse is chasing the cat, then something supernatural has happened in the mouse. If there's not a single person in this room that likes anyone else's authority over them. There's not a single person in this room that wants someone to tell them what to do. We all balk at authority. We all balk 
at commands. Every single one of us, it's the human heart. It's because of the fall. It's an overflow effect of the fall. Not a single person wants to bend the knee or bow before anyone else. I can do it on my own. I know what I'm doing. I, I can handle it. We, we, we stick our chest out. We stand up strong. Not a single person wants to do that. So when Psalm 1 says, blessed is a man who delights in the law of God, the commands of God, he's talking about someone who has, has had their life changed. And they move from delighting in their own authority to delighting in the authority of God. And John's saying, is that incrementally true in your life? Do you see his, his word less and less burdensome and more and more like hope and life? Again, it's one of the many rustling leaves. If you look at these, there's a couple that are highlighted, uh, uh, bolded there, the test of truth and love. First John, he emphasizes that, that we understand the, the truth of who Christ is, and then that overflows into love. What is he wrestling? What's he arguing? What's he presenting? The first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the vertical and the horizontal. John does that in the first letter, in the second letter, and the third letter. He does all three. And again, there's not a single person in this room that loves God perfectly. And that's what leads us to our desperate need for encouragement. Each of these is intended to be an encouragement to us. But when we hear that... When we see this list, when we, when we hear love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, some of us think we can do that pridefully. The majority of us, though, think, I don't. Love him with every thought of every single day, all of my days, with all of my energy. We don't do that. When we see a list like this, we, we tend to think of this as, we, we look at this as the ideal and we think of ourselves as the worst representation. We, we despair of ourselves. Next Sunday, we're celebrating Mother's Day. We're between series. We're going to look at Proverbs 31. And, 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 and ladies, moms, when you look at Proverbs 31, you instantly look at the, the perfect mother and you despair. I'm not like her. I can't do that. And you miss the gospel in the message. You miss the gospel in Proverbs. And when we see the ideal here, we miss the gospel. There's not a single person that does this perfectly. There's not a single person that loves God perfectly with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and loves his neighbor as himself perfectly all of the time in all the ways that we should and could love someone. There's not a single person except for Jesus. That's the gospel. That reveals to me my desperate need for him and why I must cling to him and operate every day in his strength. This is why these are intended to be encouraging and helpful the question on the table, what does the gospel transform life look like? How do I know that it's evident? Here are some evidences of that. But as you look at this, you might be saying, well, some of those aren't all in my heart, in my life. And, or maybe, maybe a lot of those I just don't see. You need to understand that spiritual growth is, it takes time. Spiritual maturity takes time. And we limit everything to right here, right now. If, if I don't do this, if that's not true, then I must not be. A couple of weeks ago, my family, we decided we have a little garden. We weren't going to plant any vegetables. We decided we we're going to plant wildflowers on the, on the little package of wildflowers, even wildflowers, not just vegetables. It says, we'll take 30 to 60 days to flower. If you came to my house, how would you know that I planted those, those flowers, all this, this whole garden full of sunflowers and wildflowers and everything else? You wouldn't. It looks like a pile of dirt. Except if you came back a week from now and there's a little, there's a little bud, a little, little green sprout coming out of the dirt. Oh, he did plant something there. He wasn't just making it up. 
And then if you came back a week later, there's a whole row of green sprouts. And if you came back a month later, 30 to 60 days later, now there's sunflowers starting to grow. If you came back in, in two or three months, those sunflowers are taller than you. How do we know that the Spirit has taken root in our heart? There's evidence, and it's an incremental supply, incremental trajectory of our lives. So when we look at these, don't be devastated and, and discouraged by these. That's not why John wrote. That's not why the Holy Spirit preserved this text for us. It's intended to bolster faith. It's intended to strengthen faith. This is why language matters. Everything, almost every one of the imperatives that John gives are in the present, active, continuous. Means when he's talking about uh, the, 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 the Christian, the, the person who's in Christ sins no longer, which is a huge stumbling block for many people when they read John. I've talked to so many people. I never would. I tried to study the letters of John. I dropped it because I got to that verse and I sin. I didn't like it. Or I've talked to others that said, I can't believe you guys are teaching through this, this study. This is such a discouraging book. I'm like, why is it discouraging? I don't understand. When you come to the verse like this, it sounds like the person who's in Christ never sins. That's not what John's saying. Present, active, continuous means it is not the habitual pattern of their lives. And why? Because of 1 John chapter 1. When his convicting light shines, we repent and we confess and we put away and we make progress and growth and sanctification and we grow. And so John is not writing to discourage, he's writing to encourage and bolster faith. Do you see incremental growth in these areas? Is this incremental the incremental trajectory of your life more and more? Is it more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world? That leads us to our third and last point. The joy and the freedom that's ours is really the big implication here. There's so many other implications, but the big implication of this of these letters, these tests can easily, we talked about it, I, I, I think it was in, when we talked about the second week in, <clears throat> in 1 John. These tests, when we see that list, it can instantly put us in our heads and, and we can start to overanalyze and, 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 and critique and, 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 and really spin out in an anxiety and fear that we have not done enough. And again, that's not why John writes. John writes for joy. He writes for freedom. He writes so that we who know, who have confessed, we would have certainty. That Another word for certainty is confidence, another theme in John. He says, we are children now. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. In Christ Jesus, we are God's children now. All those identity statements we talked about, all that future grace, that future hope is not simply future. It's also ours now. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High King now if you are in Christ Jesus. And that's intended to, that should give you such confidence, such strength. He knows my name. He hears my cries. He knows my pleas to him. He comforts me. He's near to me. He is close to me. He has drawn me in because of Christ Jesus. I am a child now. John wants us to walk in that confident assurance that confident joy. And that's why confidence is one of his big themes. He says this in, in 1 John 2, 24 to 28, that the more we grow in our understanding of who Jesus is, and the more we grow in the understanding of our new identity and all these riches and treasures that are ours in Christ Jesus, the more we grow in all of those things in our righteousness before God, the more confidence we will have as followers of Christ. The more fear will dissipate that, oh, no, no, I've not done enough. Oh, no, what's he going to do to me? Ah, 
Or the opposite, I got to just keep doing, I got to keep doing, I got to work myself into the ground, I got to keep doing, I got to keep doing. Both of those two extremes die. They dissipate, they decrease in the believer who is growing in their identity before God. I'm loved, I'm wanted, I'm chosen, I'm forgiven, he has come for me, Uh, he, he will not forsake me. No more than he will forsake his own son, Jesus Christ. And that's that, that truth, that reality, is why John emphasizes the word abide. The song we just sang, he says abide 26 times in these three letters. Abide, it means to dwell, it means to stay, it means to remain in a place. Hear the words, it means to remain in a place. It means that we need the gospel. We need Jesus to enter the kingdom of God, but we do not graduate from Jesus onto something better, onto what we can do. We must remain in that identity every single day, every single single step of our Christian faith. And this is the struggle of the Christian life. When I walk with my kids, we took our kids somewhere yesterday, and they always, they always, they will either run ahead, and I'm like, come back, come back. Where are you going? You don't even know where we're at. How could you possibly know where we're going? And they run ahead. Usually that's Addie Wynn, our oldest, or the other one is lagging behind looking at flowers. What's that? That's awesome. And we've left. We almost left her multiple times yesterday. We constantly, the Christian life is a, is a, is a, is a battle to abide. To stay right here, right where God wants us, right in his arms, in the identity that he's given us. We constantly want to go ahead, I need to add to, I need to do more. Or we're constantly lagging behind, checking out the flowers. Paul says we must keep in step with the Spirit, keep in step with Christ. We must walk, we must, John says, abide. Why do we have to be told to abide and to keep on abiding? You ever thought about that? Why is it enough just to tell us to abide? But he uses the word abide, present active continuous, meaning abide and keep on abiding every single day the rest of your life. Because the Christian life is a daily battle, a daily temptation. I am tempted daily, we are tempted daily to put our faith in our own faithfulness rather than the perfect faithfulness of Jesus. Our own faithfulness, our own performance, our own achievement, our own additions to what Christ did for us, our own, what we can do, how I can add, how I can achieve, what God needs me to do to add to the kingdom of God instead of resting in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Paul says it this way, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, be strong in the strength of the Lord. He tells Timothy to be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, rest, do, certainly do, but do in the Lord. Rest in Jesus. John urges this, begs this, calls for us to do this. Have you ever, I know you've all flown, I'm sure you've all flown, but when you fly, they tell you to put the oxygen mask on yourself before the other person, correct? You realize when you're flying at 35,000 feet, if there's cabin pressure decreases, put the oxygen mask on. It drops from the ceiling. Put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it. We've heard it all of our lives. Put the oxygen mask on before you put it on somebody else. And why? Because the plane is going to go into a deep free fall. The first thing that airplane pilots are taught to do is if the oxygen pressure, if the pressure in the oxygen, oxygen in the cabin, the pressure decreases, get below 10,000 feet. As fast as you can. That could take minutes. And you only have 30 seconds. 30 seconds before you're going to pass out from hypoxia. And so put the oxygen mask on before you try to help somebody else. We must put the oxygen mask of the gospel on ourselves before we are any good to anybody else. But have you ever noticed when they tell you to put the oxygen mask on yourself, they don't tell you how long to keep it on? Why? The assumption, the implication is that you keep it on and you keep it on and you do not take it off. 
You keep it on until you're told to take it off, until the plane can get below 10,000 feet, where then it is safe for you to take it off. We're not yet at 10,000 feet, and we don't get to take it off. And John is telling us to put the oxygen mask of the gospel, the righteousness of Christ on yourself and keep it on. Don't take it off. Put it on today. Put it on in the next step and the next step and the next step and tomorrow and the next step and the next step of tomorrow. Be fueled by it. Be plugged into it. Abide. This is the letter of John, the letters of John. The letters of John spotlight Jesus. And so I think it's only fitting that we end our letters, studying these letters with spotlighting the work that he did on our behalf on the cross. Jesus tells us that the Bread that was broken represents his body broken for us. He instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said that, and he said that to his disciples, that this wine poured out, it represents my blood, and this is his words, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Paul tells us that when we confess Christ, that we have a new identity. We've talked about it here. We confess Christ. We have a new identity. Our sins are forgiven. John tells us that he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. And when we partake in this, we are making a confession, a statement that Jesus is my king, that his body was broken for me. I'm not king. He is. My body's not sufficient. His is. And I can't pour out my blood for myself. I need him, and I need his blood poured out for me. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've not made that confession of Christ, then Paul invites you to not take this in a manner unworthy. In other words, taking this, having not made that confession, what you desperately need is to receive Jesus, not the elements. And so I invite you to come and talk. I would love to share more. I would love to hear your story. And let's talk about the gospel and talk about Jesus. For everybody else, this is an invitation for us to come to remember this glorious good news of the gospel, the work of Christ, what he did for me, giving me a new identity, and therefore what I'm called to do, be broken and poured out for my brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Our elders are going to come. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for preserving... <clears throat> Your word for us, the, the Holy Spirit, for giving us this instruction, which is extremely difficult and sometimes can actually feel discouraging more than encouraging. Lord, I pray we see it for what it is, an invitation to hope in Christ and hope in Christ alone and nothing else. And I pray that every person in this room has done that. I pray that as we enter this time of remembrance, we also recognize this is a time of celebration. Jesus really did live. He really did die. He really did raise from the grave. His body really was broken for me. His blood really was shed for me. My sins really are forgiven. I really do have a new identity in Christ. I really am a son of the Most High King, a, a daughter of the Most High King. So therefore, my faith, my hope, my righteousness is in Him. May we confess that and sing that as we celebrate and remember this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.